Welcome everyone to Classics, Kane Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, art, film, and music. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I interview Father Alquin Hurl. Father Alquin is a founding member of the Franciscan Friars of the Holy Spirit. He and his fellow friars live in Levine, Arizona, in the heart of the Gila River Indian Reservation, where they serve the Pima Indian community. Father Alquin holds a PhD in philosophy from the Catholic University of America and is an expert on the late great Etienne Gilson, especially Gilson's thought concerning aesthetics. Among his duties with the Franciscans, Father Alquin is the director of postulants and novices, which means that any man newly engaged with the friars goes through a lengthy and rigorous course of study that Father Alquin has designed, including a robust program in the humanities. I met up with Father Alquin at the Friars' headquarters in Levine. I hope you enjoy this episode of Classics. This is part one of a two-part interview. In part one, Father Alquin and I discussed the intellectual and spiritual journey that brought him to the Arizona desert to serve the Pima Indians and to train his brothers in the religious life. It is an intriguing story, marked by great books, exceptional teachers, and a young man's intellectual honesty at every turn. Well, good afternoon, Father Alquin. It's great to be here at St. Katarina's here on uh, the Gila River Indian Community Reservation. Thanks for hosting me. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, great, great to see you again. Good to be. Yeah, glad to have you back. Yeah. So we're gonna talk about your work here uh, with the Franciscan Friars of the Holy Spirit, in particular. You know, we're gonna focus today on your work as a teacher, an instructor, uh, someone who gives formation to men who are coming into the order and are, are seeking mm-hmm. uh, God's will and, and looking for uh, direction from you, especially uh, in that formation area. And But particularly, I want to talk about some of the, the great books, the music, the, the film, the art that you uh, offer your, your novices. But before we get into that, I just thought it'd be great if the audience learned a little bit about you. You know, how did, how did you come to be a Franciscan? How did you come to be a scholar? Um, tell me a little bit about your 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 growing up, where you were, and yeah. your family, and, and, and how you came to be a man who loves letters and, and art. Well, I realize more and more that I think the way to understand uh, me personally is that I'm from Charlottesville, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And Charlottesville is a little small, uh, former, former steel town, about 60 miles north of Pittsburgh, and we also affectionately call it Paradise. <laughs> Charlottesville is Paradise, we say, and it's a little town of about uh, 5,000 people um, and dwindling, um, but uh, it's, it's a place where everybody kind of knows each other, and I grew up with a deep sense of community, but also a deep sense of questioning, is do I want to spend my, the rest of my life in Sharpsville? And, um, you know, I always ask a lot of questions. And, uh, and I got turned on to reading and reading good books and um, uh, was, uh, fell in love with a girl who was a really good reader. So I really started reading lots of books because I want to impress her. <laughs> and uh, that was my senior year in high school. And then uh, I happened to get into Sarah Lawrence College um, at her. She knew about it and she challenged me to, to apply there because she was applying to other places like it and I said well why not apply I didn't think I'd get in I did get in I got a scholarship went there and I discovered philosophy and the life of the life the philosophical life and uh, studied Greek and um, started reading Greek poetry and Greek philosophy and um, it just opened up a whole other world that I realized that that science doesn't have all the answers and that the, you know the modern doctrine of progress is um uh, you know we're, we're, that these Greeks are many ways smarter than us, and uh, so that kind of pulled me out of the cave, 
And um, I really started to look into my the faith that I grew up with, Catholic. I mean, we were culturally Catholic, but I didn't really know what I believed. Um, and um, I started going to Mass every day to test it out to see if my faith was real. And um, I very quickly got um, hooked on the Eucharist, so to speak, where this that just received so much peace from Jesus, the presence in the Eucharist. And I wanted to serve at the altar. Um, I felt a call to the priesthood and uh, went to Catholic University and studied philosophy there and um, um, met some Franciscans there and uh, had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ on a personal level and got uh, touched by the Holy Spirit in a deep way, Um, got into going to praise and worship with adoration and uh, praying, going to confession. Confessional really changed my life and um, got free from sins and uh, and my, you know, and I just wanted to, um, I always wanted to serve at the altar and lead other people to the Lord the way that priests had led me to the Lord, especially in, uh, with Franciscans, led me to the Lord. And so I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be part of what John Paul II and Benedict XVI, uh, well, John Paul II at that time, in 19, I was there in 1998 when I first got there, and um, I wanted to be part of a, you know, a, a rise of, of on-fire you know, Catholicism. And, uh, I, so I joined the Franciscans in 2003. Um, and, um, and then I, and then I was off to the races and, uh, you know, went to seminary and, um, felt a call later on in my, uh, my third year of priesthood to, um, uh, when I was finishing my dissertation and in, in philosophy, uh, in 2015 to, to come on mission to, um, the Gila River Indian Reservation, um, and we got here in May of 2015. That's May 13th, 2015, uh, which we, we commemorate that day with the Blue Cross that's over our uh, uh, Our Lady of Fatima, Blue Cross over our, our house, and Our Lady looks down upon us and protects us. Our Lady of Fatima is a special patroness to get here. The natives were praying for someone, the friars, to come, for their charismatic Franciscans to return to the reservation after the Franciscans left in the 1970s. And... Um, and so uh, seven of us came, five priests and two brothers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I've, since then I've been, uh, uh, I know you asked me about my background, so now I'm going into my present, but I yeah. don't know if that's what he wanted to. No, that's good. We're okay. uh, a community of, uh, of the, the past and the present yeah. and the future, <laughs> okay. so that's good. <laughs> no, that's so, wonderful. So in, in high school when you were reading serious uh, works, what kind of books caught your imagination and captured your heart, captured your mind? Well, I got... Um, the first book that really uh, took well, I mean the the uh, Tolkien, uh, The Hobbit, and um, you know the fantasy genre, you know the Lord of the Rings. That when I was in eighth grade, I read that, and that really, really like touched me very, very deeply. But the book that really kind of hooked me um, my my senior year in high school was uh, The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Oh yeah. And, uh, and I got totally like taken by that and I met this objectivist philosopher and we you know talked it out but there was something about that that challenged my beliefs and I, it made me have to think it through and um, it, it got me on that that, that book um, you know I obviously don't agree, agree with the selfishness stuff but there was, it, it just was that that experience of being challenged and uh, and that I you know, and then I I took that fervor for Ayn Rand into college, and my professors, um, uh, what my history professor did, Jefferson Adams, who was um, conservative, um, 
scholar on the 20th century, especially Germany. And he, um, he kind of saw I was all enamored with Ayn Rand. And so he had me do, and I, he had me do a, um, a project where I, cause we do conference papers. It's kind of like an Oxford system where you'd kind of do your own project. So he had me do a project on the life of Ayn Rand. And so I read all these biographies uh, of Ayn Rand written by people who are around her. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she was, she was basically what, what I didn't, uh, you know, a, a, like a narcissistic person where mm-hmm. she had like a cult following. And mm-hmm. I saw how controlling she was and how she, th- th- there was all these kind of lurid affairs that she had and, and these people really following her like she's like a, a demigod. And mm-hmm. it's interesting because she denied the existence of God and is primarily, I think, because she, she couldn't stand not to be one, as Nietzsche would say. But you know, the, there was a lot of people around her, and I saw just, mm-hmm. and I saw that the how her philosophy led to a cult of personality, and I got turned off by it. Mm-hmm. So it was actually quite genius. So Jefferson Adams didn't argue directly against it, but he he showed how you know a materialist materialist philosophy um, that that basically Ayn Rand was the flip side of communism was his mm-hmm. thesis, um, and that he really needed a a spiritual dimension to a good political philosophy and a way of life. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a wise teacher to have seen in you that yeah. both you were enamored of Rand, but also yeah. that you were uh, open-minded, yeah. that you weren't personally ideological and, and uh, you were intellectually honest. Yeah. And so you poured through the evidence and, and arrived at that discovery yourself, which yeah. is a really, that's kind of pay dirt. That's what we all dream of as teachers to have students arrive at those discoveries on their own with our guidance, of yeah. course, but you know. That's uh, that's real freedom. That's real liberal education. And then you you studied Greek philosophy and Greek poetry at Sarah Lawrence. Yes. Yeah. So, any books, any poetry in particular? Uh, that well, was, I mean, that was Michael Davis, who was a great, a, I mean, a, a true a true philosopher um, teacher. You know, he took me through the the drama of the life of Socrates, mm-hmm. and I just got enamored with Socrates, mm-hmm. and I got enamored with. You know, uh, you know, um, Socrates has Apollodorus who dresses like him, and of course, I started dressing like Michael Davis with corduroy jackets, and I grew a beard and the whole thing. And I actually, you know, wish I was bald with a comb over. But anyway, um, uh, I became enamored with my philosophy teacher. I think it's that's actually quite common when when you when you get fall in love with the intellectual life. And um, but uh, the apology of Socrates um, and 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 how kind of deeply radical the new way of life that Socrates was presenting to the people mm-hmm. and how he really was deeply undercutting the, uh, the, 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 the religious domination at the time of Greek paganism mm-hmm. and how he was, you know, on the one hand, he presents himself as faithful, but he is really a radical. And, and I think there's a deeper reading of the apology that mm-hmm. he is really throwing everything on its head by, by standing for the human capacity to know the truth. In some way, the, the, I think that the poets and, um, and the religious, you know, uh, paganism at the time denies the human capacity to know truth. But he really presented this new way of life and wanted to, you know, ground society on a new, a new grounding, which was uh, re- the reason's capacity to know the truth. And that was deeply, deeply radical. And, um, and it, I think um, that's a great way to kind of summarize what he was coming up against, which yes. is domination. And, and it, you know, in, I would say in domination in multiple expressions, not just religious, but yeah. you know, political and relational and just, um, and to, to experience the freedom that, 
that he wanted to foster through, uh, you know, improving yourself by by seeking what is good, seeking what is true, and uh, living honestly and faithfully to that. Mm-hmm. That uh, that really is a, a radical different, a radical kind of a life turn uh, for the Athenians. Um, any pre- and so you, uh, did you study Aristotle too as an undergraduate? Yeah, we did Aristotle's Ethics mm-hmm. um, and uh, also the Poetics mm-hmm. and. Um, and I, I also study metaphysics, but the um, I'd have to say that the uh, and, and Michael Davis very much would would read philosophy through the eyes of the poets. So he knew that his his thesis is that Homer was the teacher of Plato. That mm-hmm. that, that that these guys were in dialogue with Sophocles, and and these were their that's who they were talking to. They were inventing a new genre, but essentially that's who they were in dialogue with. So he would always bring the poetry in. So I read the, the I read the Iliad and the Odyssey as well. And, and, and to read the tragedies, you know, the yes, Theban yeah. plays by Sophocles, yes, the, the yeah. Oristea by Aeschylus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I read all that. I actually read the, I read, um, um, so my senior year, I, I, I studied Greek with a, a great, um, uh, a, a very eccentric man named Sam Siegel. Um, Sam slept in his office. Um, he grew, had a big, long white beard. He was a Jewish man. Mm-hmm. And he was the last student of Werner Jaeger um, at, at, at Harvard. Wow. Yeah. And wow. so and he would tell all these stories about Jaeger and how yeah. his wife would send the security to stop Jaeger from lecturing because Jaeger would just not stop lecturing. And Jaeger knew so much. And yeah. he was very proud of being Jaeger's last student. Yeah. Um, and um, But Sam had that old school um, education at Harvard at that time in the 50s where they read absolutely everything and yeah. Sam had read all the major works in Greek yeah. everything and he knew them and he knew he would he, he could refer to them and he was just absolutely amazing but very few people would take Sam's classes because he was such a um, eccentric um, he would eat literally eat he would sit there while you were translating Greek and eat uh, like 12 Salisbury steaks right in front of you and, and just as thin as a rail just yeah. this kind of this man out of the past. And yeah. so I got all this individual attention and we read, um, I read Euripides Helen all the way through. I also read, um, a large part of Sophocles, uh, um, Oedipus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, also, um, I mean, I read, I also read some Latin works as well, but, uh, that those were the, that's the poetry that I mainly got immersed in. And then I also read the Odyssey with him yeah. just in English and we went through it. So at this time, uh, in your intellectual and spiritual development, were you uh, kind of were, were you integrating uh, faith and, and reason? Were you uh, had you as sometimes happens in undergraduate years? Did you kind of bracket all that off yeah. and say, "I'm just going to pursue this you, right now"? You know, I, I was my, my my the 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 dialogue I went from was that you know I had this objectivist thing with the fountainhead, and then I saw that life and I knew that was not going to lead anywhere and then by reading Aristotle and Plato I realized that these guys were smarter than us because mm-hmm. uh, Michael very much read it that way I mean that these guys have some answers they have something to say and um, and that they apply to now that he didn't read it through this, the progressivist lens so um, and then when I read Descartes with Michael Davis, I saw that modern science um, did not quite have all the answers that I once thought it was. So I actually wanted to be a physicist through this time. And um, I, uh, uh, um, I, so in many ways, I think I kind of got brought out of the cave mm-hmm. because I saw that um, 
you know, that, that modern science didn't have all the answers and that a lot of the things surrounding it was, were kind of mythical, you know, and then this, this, the doctrine of progress, uh, I realized was very much a propaganda thing that, that because the way that Michael read the modern philosophers like Descartes, Rousseau, Spinoza, is that they all knew that they had not disproved the ancient philosophers or, or disproved God. But they knew that they had to act like they did. And so that was the propaganda aspect of modernity, is that they kind of had to create this doctrine of progress. Well, well stupid people, you know, still believe in that old stuff like like the, the, like God and stuff like that. Um, that, that essentially, um, you know, if you're, if you're an enlightened person, you know better. But they knew better that that wasn't true, that, that, that if you really read into Rousseau, he's... He's, he's tormented by the fact that he has not overcome Aristotle and Plato, and he knows he hasn't. Um, but he acts like he has to act like he, ha- he does, and that's the propaganda part of modern philosophy. And so modern philosophy has this overlay of kind of a, a political agenda of making room for, um, you know, modern physics and, um, uh, and, and just the, the, the agenda of modern philosophy. So I kind of saw through that. Um, because of that, and, and I, I, I feel like I, that was where I was kind of uh, pulled out of the, the the cave, which I think is essentially, um, you know, the shadows on the cave, the, the false ideas that rule us is uh, the progressivism, mm-hmm. and ultimately the idea that truth is reduced to, you know, um, you know, the empirical, you know, and the mathematical, and just science is the only place where there's truth. And by reading the old works, and by reading the modern philosophers. In, in continuity with that, I, I was able to see that um, that you know that human life had a spiritual dimension. I and I didn't get into um, questioning the uh, uh, the role of Jesus Christ in that until later. I mean, really, my dialogue was between the the, the ancients and the moderns, and getting out of the cave to see, okay, there is a spiritual reality. There is a way of life that's beyond just uh, the material. Um, Because I was trapped in that, especially with Anne Rand. I mean, she's essentially a materialist, so everything's just kind of matter for her. Um, And uh, but Plato and Aristotle kind of pulled me out of that. And then the question of Jesus—if you want to hear about that—I mean, I can go to that. But really, my dialogue tended to be so. I got heavily into Nietzsche as well, and so Nietzsche is interesting because he goes against Socrates and he revives. uh, the, the critique of Aristophanes of Socrates, that in some way the poetic has a primacy over the philosophical. And, and so Nietzsche is very interesting because he's the first one to really take Aristophanes seriously. And by doing that, he's one of the first ones to actually take any ancient author seriously. Um, and he, I think that Nietzsche is kind of the first one to crack open the possibility of reading these ancient works and applying them to them because everybody was so so immersed in um, that the idea of modern progress that well Plato doesn't really have much to say you read it for historical interest he's not I mean er, Nietzsche took Aristophanes very seriously and and then and then Heidegger after him and then those guys really open up the possibility of reading Aristotle and Plato um, as as applying to our, our times now. Um, and so, um, so I got really heavily into Nietzsche and started to kind of like sympathize with um, some of his views um, and um, his opening up the ancient works, but also him uh, really taking the side of the poets over and against yeah. the philosophers. And so, yeah. 
Yeah. So, and and then you eventually made your way to graduate school. Yes. And uh, and your your scholarly work, your dissertation, was on one Just of the, some. the greatest minds of the last century who yeah. who brought a beautiful wedding between Athens and Jerusalem. You did. Right. Yes. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit yeah, about your I dissertation? Mean, uh, and yeah. What, I, I mean, I read I read I read Aristotle's Confessions at Reed College. I went to Reed College, great book school, um, in uh, in my junior year, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I saw that, okay, that, that maybe, you know, Jesus for me at that time was, he was too literal. It was too re- religious. I mean, it's too kind of, you know, I was comfortable with Greek metaphor with regard to religion mm-hmm. and kind of, there's beauty there. And there's, it's metaphorical, but not the immediate, like, I am the truth. That was mm-hmm. just kind of very, it just didn't fit within my schema. But my parents had this big conversion to Jesus and uh, this personal relationship with Jesus, which I was just like shocked by. And but I recognized I needed to search that out, and so I I started going to the Gospel of John and I tried to disprove that being born again was something that um, was uh, just it wasn't in accord with the text of the Bible. And you know I went so I ended up reading Scripture and I was reading it in Greek and um, to disprove them and. Um, but Michael Davis and a lot of my teachers had trained me to be very honest about what a text actually says. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized that Christianity was about a transformation. It was about being born again. It was about a spiritual renewal. Mm-hmm. It was about meeting Christ in a personal way. And I couldn't deny that because when you read the Gospel of John, that's all it's about. Mm-hmm. And I saw that very, very clearly by reading it. And I didn't like it. It was too immediate. It didn't fit within the ancient... The, 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 what I would accept is acceptable at that time. But I, um, you know, I, I uh, ended up having a very hard conversion to Jesus Christ and ended up mm-hmm. giving my life to Jesus and meeting Jesus and realizing that he was the truth that I was always searching for. Um, so I was looking for, and I felt like I was kind of giving up my mind by doing that, giving up reason by doing that at the time. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered in graduate school um, through uh, Ken Schmitz, Professor Ken Schmitz, who was a student of Gilson, expert on the thought of uh, Hegel, but also on John Paul II and his plays. Um, the, the sh- at he Schmitz. was at uh, CU, uh, Catholic yeah, University. Yeah, he was a yeah. professor at Catholic University at my time there between 1998 and 2003. And um, he was a man who knew Jesus on a personal level, but also had an intellectual life. And so I and and so he introduced me to Gilson and and the Christian of. Uh, the question of Christian philosophy. And so Gilson fascinated me because he was this, this very deeply faithful Catholic all his whole life, just mm-hmm. unshakable. And he also uh, was a man of faith, but also a, a man with deep respect for reason. And, mm-hmm. and he was bringing it together in a modern context. And he'd read the whole, I mean, Gilson read everything. He remembered everything that he read. He read the whole, um, you know, Western tradition um, and um, he was a great, so he inspired me as a, as a believer um, who also had uh, was living in an intellectual life. So um, I studied Gilson uh, all through my, I followed him and, and studied his stuff all through graduate school. Um, anyone hear my, my, my dissertation? Sure, yeah. Okay, so I, um, um, I couldn't get away from Gilson. I kept, I kept kind of trying to overcome him, and I just couldn't. And uh, I just, he was just. He just, I was just called to study Gilson, and um, I got real into existential Thomism and, and and all that stuff with just the the act of God is the pure act of being, and that um, you know there's no distinction between 
God's essay and his essence and the act of existence and his essence where everybody else has a kind of real distinction. But that, that um, um, I, I ended up studying, I was always fascinated by my philosophy as a way of life more than just kind of a doctrine and an idea. And I found that in Gilson. Gilson was different than most of the other philosophers um, is that he really saw philosophy as a search, a way of life. And um, um, I saw that in his works and uh, and then you felt a freedom in reading his stuff that he wasn't just he wasn't just imparting to you, you know, his doctrine or his take on Thomas. Mm-hmm. He was really inviting you into reading the works of Thomas and inviting you into the dialogue. And he really saw the history of philosophy as fundamentally a dialogue, and not just well, I know the answer is now, and I'm the final word on Thomas, or I'm the final word on the truth, and. Uh, and so I really liked that about Gilson. So I ended up writing on uh, philosophy as a way of life and the thought of Etienne Gilson. And um, I focused um, that, that, that that's the thing that made him different. You know, the, um, they say that uh, the, the, um, Maurer used to say, it's either Maurer or Pegasus, both were students of Gilson at the, the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies, said, um, what's the difference between Maritain and Gilson? And the, 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 the proper answer to that question, according to Maurer, was, uh, Armin Maurer, was um, uh, that, that Maritain had, had disciples. Gilson did not. And uh, I think that shows the, the difference between the two. And so uh, um, in my, my dissertation, I, I went through... I, I focused well, on... Can, can we stop? And yeah. Can you explain that to me? So are you saying that... Uh, Gilson was asking of his students a kind of independence that, yes. that Maritain did not. So if you, what Gilson is very famous about, like if someone was disrespectful towards like Don Scotus, mm-hmm. you know, which often happens with Thomas, there's one man who did that and one actually in one of his final examinations and Gilson failed him and bounced him out of the school. Mm-hmm. So, so and no writer's a straw man. No. Yeah, you don't and say so Gilson yet. was strict on that. You could not come into the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies and be a strict Thomas. You, could, you just couldn't get through. In the sense of being like ideological, all I need to do is read Thomas. Mm-hmm. For Gilson, he just had no patience for any of he that. Took, he took all the writers you, seriously. You had to read, you had to read, you didn't even understand Thomas unless mm-hmm. you read everybody around him and who mm-hmm. he's talking to. You've got to read Avicenna. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't understand Thomas Aquinas unless you know um, what, that he's primarily talking to Avicenna. And so, um, and, and Gilson reflected that, I mean, why he is the greatest philosopher for the 20th century, uh, Catholic philosopher of the 20th century, is because he wrote uh, major groundbreaking works on every Catholic thinker, on, on all the major Catholic thinkers. I mean, his book on Bonaventure, his books on Thomas, his books on Augustine, on Dante, on Avicenna, Don Scotus. No other Catholic philosopher did that. And he knew all that. He knew those writers in and out, maybe less Don Scotus. Um, his, his, his understanding of Albert the Great was a little bit weak, but everybody else he knew backward and front, frontward. Like I said, he remembered everything that he read. He read it all in the original works. I mean, um, he, he knew the whole thing. And he insisted that everybody approach uh, medieval studies from a historical perspective in the sense of understanding the whole medieval context. So he required everybody to read canon law, to read the poetry at the time, to read um, uh, theology and philosophy. So you couldn't just be kind of a person who I only strictly read the, you know, just these narrow, just the philosophical works of Thomas Aquinas, which there's only yeah. a few of those. But you had to know everything. 
So I'm, I'm loving this, this biography, if for no other reason, as an old teacher um, and as a, a colleague to thousands of teachers across the country who are trying to train young people in the, the, the essential skills of close reading, intelligent yes. discussion, and, and clear writing. I, I love the, 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 the mounting discipline that you're describing as a, as a young intellectual. So you learned early on from your teachers to read closely a text. That's right. You learned um, early on and, and continuously to take each text seriously. And, yes. and at the feet of Gilson, at the feet of your other professors, you, you learned to read everything That's and to right. take each text seriously. Even though you were dedicated to Gilson, yeah. you, you didn't just read Gilson, I'm sure. Yes. And, and then finally, um, all your teachers encourage you to be intellectually honest, to follow the evidence. Yes. And, and to work it over uh, as coherently, as logically, as thoroughly as you can. So these are great takeaways for teachers to, yeah. to work with their students. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, if you ask me what I do is I interpret good and great texts. That's what I've been trained to do. And that's the, the, the greatest skill that I've ever received. And, um, and you can, and I've, I've built my whole way of life around that. And, um, that and you can get more and more out of a great text, and uh, I really believe in that. And that you can never quite, you know, have a grip. And we we're just talking about how to teach the apology, and you know, you just a new text illuminates itself each time, you know. Um, and um, and that's there's just something so life giving and um, taking a great text and reading it again and again and again and and seeing something new. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's one of one. It's one of the sheer delights of being a teacher too. I know yeah. I, I've taught some text twenty or thirty times, mm-hmm. and and I love learning something new from the students. Yes, the, the, to get yeah, fresh eyes on it. Yeah, and uh, and of course, what's amazing is that I get older, and the students don't. They they are still young. You know, they're still eighteen, seventeen every year that I teach them. Uh, so uh, so that exchange, yeah. in a sense, is 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 uh, fresh each time as well. enjoyed this episode of Classics. In part two of my interview with Father Alquin Hurl, we'll discuss the powerhouse curriculum he's devised for the young men being trained to become Franciscan friars of the Holy Spirit. We have other great episodes coming soon, so keep the conversation going and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The producer of this podcast is Helen DeSell Zorneman. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. For all of us at Kane Academy, thanks for listening to Classics. <laughs>